This is Neon Radio, episode 107. Musical supervisor for the hit show Hamilton, Alex Lacamoire. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. What is up, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of Neon Radio. I'm excited to bring to you today's guest. His name is Mr. Alex Lacamoire. I met him through my girlfriend, Stacey London, as we've been on the Hamilton journey over the last, I'd say, probably year. And if you don't know what Hamilton is or you haven't heard it, you need to get out of the hole and check it out. It is the hottest thing on Broadway. I'm not even really a Broadway person, but this play is amazing. I've seen it twice. Stacy's seen it multiple times and it's worth it. Everybody that I know that has seen it raves about it and wants to see it multiple times. It is revolutionizing the way that we are learning about history and it's revolutionizing Broadway. They won 11 Tonys for the play this year, of which today's guest has one of those. Alex is a brilliant creative, works next to Lin-Manuel and Tommy. They are the trio that is Hamilton, that created Hamilton. And Alex is the musical director for Hamilton, which means that Lynn comes to him with his idea, the lyrics and everything, and Alex puts it all together. He builds the orchestra, he builds the team, he builds and coaches everyone musically. It's truly amazing what he's created. On this episode, we learn about Alex's creative process. We learn how he made money when he first started doing music, how music has been his life and his soul and how he developed hearing loss from a young age, but how he's gotten through it and able to create the music that he's created. He's won a Grammy and a Tony for the play In the Heights, which was with Lynn as well. And then he won a Grammy and a Tony for the play Hamilton, which everyone knows now. One thing I love about Alex is his positive energy and just positive outlook on life. And we have to talk a lot about where that's come from in his life and how it's gotten him to where he's gotten, how it's helped him build his creative career. So with that, let's jump right in. And I bring to you the one, the only, Mr. Alex Lacamoire. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the show. We have an amazing guest. He's the musical supervisor and musical director of the hit show Hamilton. We've got Mr. Alex Lacamoire. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for coming on. And I am so excited to chat with you. You have an amazing story. You do amazing work. Thank and you. And I am I am so honored to have you on. Oh, thank you, man. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so if you guys don't know what Hamilton is, you should definitely look it up and, and see it. It is the biggest show on Broadway to date. It's revolutionizing culture and politics and everything. And I want to talk to you, Alex, about 
you know, how you, you're the musical director for the year, but like, how did you get started? You're Grammy winning, Tony winning artists. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So Thank you. let's get started. Where are you from? Kind of how, how did you get into musical theater and, and all that? Yeah. So I was born in Los Angeles in uh, 1975. Wow. And uh, I lived there till I was nine and then I moved to Miami. So I feel like I grew up in Miami, like even though, you know, my earliest years were in L.A., like when people ask me, where are you from? I say Miami, like that's where I was a teen. That's where I started to become a young adult. Yeah. And then uh, I, I went to school in Boston for college. I went to Berkeley College of Music and then I moved to New York in 1998 so I've been in New York longer than any other city I've lived in. So like now I feel like a New Yorker. Right. But, uh, you know, in terms of the music side of my life, I've been into music as long as I can remember. You know, I, I've been told that even when I was two years old, I would be sitting in front of the stereo speaker, staring into the speakers while music was playing, just like transfixed, wondering yeah. where the music was coming from. And I started to play piano when I was four. I took lessons when I was four. Mm. And I think that came about because I had a toy piano that my, my parents bought me. And I would play along with this toy piano along the songs that were on the radio. And I don't know how accurate I was <laughs> to the songs that I was hearing, but clearly like I, I displayed some kind of love for the instrument. And then uh, I started taking lessons and I, I just never looked back. And, um, you know, I started with the classical stuff and, you know, the rudimentary, the scales and the very easy pieces. And um, then I started to learn, like, you know, I started to get interested in pop music and I started to learn to play by ear. Oh, wow. I started to learn how to like read you know, charts of pop songs of the day. And whenever the sheet music didn't include like the guitar solo, I would learn how to play the guitar solo on the piano because I wanted to learn how to recreate music. And so I've always just had a fascination with how music is put together. Mm. And, um, you know, high school, I started to learn about jazz. Um, high school, I started to arrange and orchestrate. I went to college at Berkeley. I learned even more about that. So mm. you know, just basically getting older and getting more exposure and just learning has always all kind of, added to the cumulative knowledge of music. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's the kind of stuff that you gain from experience, the kind of stuff you gain from just like, you know, a, a trial and error. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, without a doubt, music is what I've always wanted to do. Music is what I feel like I was born to do. It, it's yeah. what I feel like I do best. It's, it's fills me, what fulfills me, what fuels me, all yeah, that. Absolutely. And, um, so the theater thing that, that kind of happened in, in junior high school, I, um, uh, started to kind of hang out with the theater kids because uh, they needed someone to play in the orchestra of the summer production of Bye Bye Birdie. And so I was this 11-year-old kid playing keyboard bass in the orchestra for Bye Bye Birdie. And there were my, you know, my, my peers up on stage singing and dancing. I'm like, oh my God, theater is fun. <laughs> and I like <sighs> something about watching them perform, something about the way they, how outgoing they were, how much fun they were to be around. Mm -hmm. It's just it's something about the art form of theater the collaborative aspect of it just really appealed to me. So I've, it's always been something I've been interested in. And yeah. even though I went to Berkeley and, and, you know, even though in high school and, and um, college, I was studying other things like studying jazz, studying theory, studying piano. I always kind of had a little bit of like a hobby part of me that was like playing in the school productions or playing auditions or playing musical theater stuff. So it's always been uh, a love of mine in, in the things I've studied and then when I came to New York, it full blown became like the thing that I do. And that was just by, by happenstance. But, yeah. uh, but it is, I, I do love it. I love the medium and I love that I get to like, you know, kind of put everything I know about music together into what it is that I do, the playing aspect of it, the arranging aspect of it, the, mm. the leadership aspect of it. So it, it's really a skill. What I do now is very much like, I, I think utilizes all the skills that I've learned and, and I'm glad I get to do right. that. 
Absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you. So who, who was your biggest influence growing up? Wow. Uh, you mean in terms of like teachers or like, or, or I, I'd say world? for life, like who influenced you the most? Probably my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I would say so. She's a uh, wonderful lady. She's a wonderful lady and you've met her and yeah. she's, she's delightful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I cite her as influential just because she's like so selfless. I, I mean, you know, this is a woman, I mean, well, first of all, she moved to the United States from Cuba at the age of, uh, gosh, she moved in 57. She was born in 43. So I guess she was 14, 15 years old and uh, moved here to the United States with her, her grandmother, mm. left behind her mom and dad, left behind her nine other siblings. And, um, you know, just, just found a way to survive in this country <laughs> as an immigrant <laughs> and uh, just completely fought. And uh, I don't know, there's just something and she uh, absolutely provided took care of us, like her kids. I have a younger sister and like her kids are her life. You know, yeah. it, it's um, her calling to, to be a mother. And there's just something about the way she lights up when she's around kids, when she's around uh, uh, children. I don't know, there's something very nurturing about her. Yeah. She just really um, just took care of us, provided for us and worked all the odd jobs that she needed to and that she could in order to uh, provide for us financially. Yeah. Took care of my father who had a stroke when I was four years old and he oh. was, you know, approaching 40. So basically had to not only take care of two kids, but also take care of a, a disabled man. So it, it, she definitely, um, you know, has gone through a lot. It's not been easy for mom, but she's always just so, there's a, there's a magic about her. Yeah. You know, she, she is, uh, there's optimism about her. There's love in her. There's a joy in her. And uh, yeah. I don't know, man, it's uh, to have that kind of encouragement and support growing up as a kid. Like I know not everybody has that. And I'm very, very blessed to have had that in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents were similar in the respect that they pushed me to do what I loved. Good. And uh, it's it's a different, it's not not, not normal. Yeah, not everybody gets that, you know? And yeah. um, and especially like, you know, uh, what we do, like it's the arts, you know? It's like, that's not a very stable <laughs> profession no. for everybody. Um but fortunately, you know, my mom, I guess, had enough people around her kind of letting her, letting her know that her son was musically uh, uh, apt. Or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. Or I, I don't know what, what the word is, but I, don't, I, I guess, you know, she was, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it, but, you know, some people perhaps, let's, let's say some parents might have a fear that their child might try to like make it in the arts and completely not make enough money to support themselves or just fail and whatever. Yeah. I guess my mom was able to like put that aside and, and either by what she saw and what it is that I could do or by whatever influence she was getting from my teachers and, and, and older people who would say to her, listen, your son is special that she, yeah. she listened to that and, and kind of just never said no about me pursuing a life in music. That just never was an issue. Absolutely. So what would you say would have been your, your biggest challenge growing up and, and pursuing this? Uh, I mean, you know, my, my biggest challenge growing up just in life was just feeling so fucking awkward. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Just, dude, I was such a dork growing up and, and it's funny. I, there, there's times that I really wish I can go back and do it all again. I just, I feel like I got it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just never felt uh, cool, I guess is one way to describe it. You know, uh, uh, having a hearing deficiency uh, kind of didn't help. You know, I, I, yeah. I wear hearing aids yeah. and I definitely felt uh, just left out of, of a lot of stuff, not only because 
I just felt embarrassed when people would ask me, hey, what's that thing in your ear, you know? Yeah. Or just always feeling lost because like some story would be told or some joke would happen. And then I would be like, what happened, what happened? And that would happen either because I couldn't hear it because I couldn't hear mm. or just because, you know, growing up in a Cuban household, like, you know, my Spanish wasn't that great growing up. So my vocabulary just wasn't really good. So I just missed a lot. Yeah. So as a result, I, I felt very kind of uh, insular and I definitely like became a homebody and like focused mm. on like, uh, you know, I, I kind of built my own world in a way. And yeah. that world included television and video games and piano and, and you know, it's <laughs> very kind of cut off. And um, so, yeah. And even in junior high school and high school, just like, just uh, not, you know, uh, just finding it hard to fit in. Yeah. And, you know, junior high school is an awkward time anyway. Your 13s and your 14s are an awkward time anyway. So awkward. But I got to say, man, it's like music was absolutely my salvation. Yeah. It was music that, I don't know, it, it's, on the personal level, you know, on on the uh, on the individual level, it's like I said, it's what I could focus on. It's like yeah. it's what I love, like sitting and listening to a record and reading along the lyrics, or um, you know, watching a music video and trying to like be good about naming every person in the band and sitting at a piano and trying to like recreate a song. Like that yeah. filled me. But also, it's music that let people know that I kind of had some value in a way. And I know that sounds like a very self-pitying way to describe right. it. But w what I'm trying to say essentially is that because I played piano, like that's what made people want to talk to me. Mm. Like, I feel like that's what made people be like, oh, we need a pianist for this event. Let's call Alex, you know? Like yeah. it would be me sitting at a piano at, you know, at nine years old playing I Can Fight This Feeling by Ariel Speedwagon <laughs> that got people to crowd around the piano. And, you know, I gotta say, man, I remember... This story just popped into my head. I moved to Los Angeles in 1984. I was nine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a hard time fitting in because, like, this cool season had already started. I had I wasn't from Miami. I didn't have any friends. It was very difficult. And I was just very kind of lonely. Yeah. And I, my fifth grade teacher, we just didn't get along. She just had it out for me, dude. Just, like, really. Oh, man. Even from the first day I got there. It's like I walked in. She's like, everybody, this is Alex, a new student. He's from California. And they're like, hi, Alex. I said, Alex, do you know what the, what the capital of, of California is? I'm like, Sacramento. And, and I got that right. <laughs> it's like, do you know what the capital of, 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 my, of Florida is? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't. It's like, class, what's the capital of Florida? They're like, Tallahassee. And like already from the first five minutes, I felt like an idiot oh, man. for not knowing something. Yeah. So right away, it's just like, it, that was not a good introduction to fifth grade. So uh, oh, I do remember, you know, the teacher just being hard on me and just like kind of picking on me. And I talked to my mom about it. I cried to her about it. It was so difficult. My mom spoke to the principal, let her know that I was having these issues. And then one day, maybe like, I don't know, four months into the fifth grade school year, we're at, in the cafeteria and it's a big open cafeteria where the entire school goes to eat at the same hour, you know, mm -hmm. beat classes from kindergarten to, to sixth grade. And then the principal just kind of comes up to me in the middle of me eating. And she said, Alex, uh, Rosemary Brady was her name. She's like, Alex, I, 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 so you play piano, huh? I'm like, yeah, I do. She's like, uh, there's a piano over there. You, you want to play? I'm like, yeah, sure. So in the middle of like lunch, I sit down at this piano. I start playing some sonata or some something that I've been learning in my music classes. And the whole cafeteria hall just like shushed and just listened to me play. Wow. And I don't know, just like, I mean, I'm getting emotional thinking about oh. it, but it, I don't know. It just made me, I don't know. It's, um, it just gave me a little focus in a way. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it just allowed me to, uh, I'm sorry I'm having a hard time talking no, about no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> totally but, um, 
I mean, all this to say, like, music means something very important mm-hmm. to me. And yeah. um, without it, I don't know <laughs> where I'd be. Yeah. In terms yeah. of my self-confidence, in terms of where I am in my career and my life and all that stuff. So... Yeah. And it's, it's part of your soul, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's rescued you and also given you your, your wings of, of that yeah. sort, you know, and, 1000%. and you've been able to impact so many people, which is highly I, admirable, you know, and, and you. acknowledge you for that. Cause Thank it's, you, it's amazing. Thank you. And, you know, I think also what I love about you and, and this idea is the hearing loss, you know, you overcame that to now becoming, being on Broadway, you know, what, what did that take from you? I mean, first of all, mm. you know, what, what was the hearing loss? What happened and how did, you know, how did that come about? And then how did you overcome that? You know, I don't know if there's a specific event that caused it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think they just realized, you know, that they had a hard time getting my attention sometimes. Like if my mom, if my mom called me from another room and I wouldn't hear, or if they needed to repeat things certain times, cause I would be like, what, what? I think they just realized they should check something. And, you know, the good news is my hearing has not changed at all since I was a kid. You know, I get Mm -hmm. hearing tests periodically in my life and and it's exactly the same as what it was when I was a kid. And the best way to describe it is like, you know, you look at a hearing chart of like an average person and it's kind of like a straight line. Mm -hmm. And then you look at mine and then it basically looks like it goes straight, straight, straight. And then just dips down and you see like this, it's like almost a pothole. (laughs) Oh, wow. And what it is, is I just kind of have a defic- deficiencies in, in higher frequencies. Okay. And higher frequencies in modern day everyday speech tend to be consonants, mm-hmm. tend to be like high, higher pitched things. So because of that, my hearing is very bass heavy. It's a lot of vowels and no consonants. Right. So it's just hard to discern things. So yeah. my hearing aids that I wear compensate for that and they kind uh-huh. of like favor higher frequencies to try to kind of more or less level out and normalize what my hearing really is. Yeah. And by no means do I consider myself deaf. By no means do I consider, you know, it's not like a, a Beethoven situation where like I can't hear at all. Yeah. If I'm not wearing my hearing aids, I will be able to hear you. You, you are now sitting close enough to me that I would know what's happening. Right. But like put you 10 feet away from me and start to talk to me in a quiet voice. I'm not going to hear you where other people would. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of overcoming that, you know, it, it was mostly just, you know, I, at this point it just is what it is. Like I've now mm-hmm. lived with this, image yeah. for lack of a better term, this sound image. And that's just what it is. That's what I know. Mm-hmm. And I know what it sounds like when I take these things out, my hearing aids out. I know what it sounds like now when they're in mm-hmm. and you just adjust. It's actually your brain that adjusts a lot. Like, oh, you know, what's interesting is that you get a new pair of glasses and you start wearing them. You're like, Whoa, what is this? Everything looks <laughs> totally weird. And then like, this is terrible. How am I going to live with this next day? You all of a sudden know what it is. Your brain knows how to get accustomed to what that image is. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens with sound. Like I'll putting here, hearing aids. I'm like, this is crazy. I hear the air conditioning running. I hear this weird hiss in the world. And like <laughs> all of a sudden the next day you just get used to it. That's just what it is. Cause your brain just like it's, and it goes through its own algorithm yeah. and it just gets used to it. But a big decision for me was to actually get hearing aids in my later adult life. Because as I told you, I wore them when I was a kid, I went through all elementary school wearing them Around junior high, I remember only having one because I couldn't afford a second one. <laughs> and then uh, I just stopped wearing them because, like I said, I, I got too many questions about what's that thing behind your ear. And yeah. I just didn't like talking about it. And I stopped wearing it. So about a good five years between, you know, I'm going to say eighth grade and, and getting to college, I just stopped wearing them. I missed a lot of jokes. You know, I, yeah. I asked my friends to repeat a lot of stuff. 
I acted like I knew what was funny when I didn't, you know, I pretended like I knew what was going on sometimes when I, I had mm-hmm. no clue. And then around college, I was in a band and the singer had said to me, dude, you should think about getting uh, earplugs, custom made yeah. earplugs. I'm like, oh, sure, I should do that because, you know, I got to protect my hearing. And when I was at the audiologist, you know, I'm there, they're molding me for getting molds taken for earplugs. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm like, I've been here before. I'm like, yeah, I know all about this. I used to wear hearing aids. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden the audiologist is super intrigued. He's like, wait a minute, you wear hearing aids? I'm like, yeah, I used to wear them when I was a kid. Like, what, let's get a hearing test right now. <laughs> and then she was like, you know, yeah, absolutely. You have a hearing loss. She was able to tell me it was the same as it was when I was a kid, when I dug up my old mm-hmm. charts and basically encouraged me to have them because she said, listen, the technology is now such that the hearing aids go inside the canal of your ear. They're not behind your ears anymore. So people won't notice them. I'm like, really? Oh, like, yeah, just try them. I'm like, sure. And man, that changed everything. Wow. <laughs> because to this day, there's so many people like, who don't realize I wear hearing aids. They just don't notice them. Yeah. And it's weird for me because I see someone who wears them and that's the first thing I notice. It's if they have hearing aids, I just naturally just see it. Yeah. But then that just opened up everything. And because I, I realized, you know, dude, it's time for me to get them. I'm putting too many strangers in like at, through too much, having them repeat everything. I'm missing too much of life and, and it's just, it's time for me to man up and just get them. And, and I did, and I just never stopped. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's amazing. And it's amazing. The technology that's even oh, out there now. I mean, it's you, ridiculous. Yeah. You wouldn't think. No, exactly. Like if this had been around when I was younger, like I would have been wearing them much longer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did that affect you? Uh, emotionally growing up and, and get, how'd you get through? I mean, I don't know if you were bullied or if, if people uh, like made fun of you, it sounds like some of that kind of stuff could have happened. Yeah. You know, fortunately I don't remember getting bullied for like my hearing. Like yeah. that's fine. I mean, if anything, you know, I got a little made fun of just because I was just like <laughs> a little uneducated, I guess about certain things, like, you know, just certain slang and certain stuff like, you know, not knowing what the word making out meant or something like that. <laughs> you know, like, or like there's certain things, I guess, you know, as much as I love my folks, being them being immigrants made it kind of hard for them to kind of keep me kind of in the know of like just modern vernacular, just modern day life as a kid growing up. So I guess there was a little bit, a lot that I kind of had to figure out on my own. Mm-hmm. In, and while I can't think of any specific examples right now, I know very much like there were times in junior high school where a kid was mentioned some word, like, what about this thing? I'm like, Oh, what's that? It's like, you don't know what X, Y, Z is, you know? (laughs) And it's the kinds of things that like, I don't know how one learns what X, Y, Z is except for a parent kind of explaining to you what's happening in the world without someone kind of like that right person guiding you to explain what it is that you kind of like need to know. So because of that, I, again, I I talked about being a little insular. I, I, you know, I was way more into like sitcoms and MTV than like, you know, daily news and, and keeping up with that kind of stuff. So I just yeah. didn't have that. While I had wonderful uh, uh, support and, and encouragement from my folks, that kind of like common sense, uh, everyday kind of things. And, and common sense is a terrible phrase. Cause I, it's not like my parents didn't give me common sense, but like the kinds of things you just learn on your own. I just didn't really have that kind of guidance. So <laughs> I felt a little kind of a C and, and that's where I feel like some of the, the, you know, I, I was an easy target. Let's put it that way. <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, I think it's amazing that you can, you've gone through that and you can orchestrate complete <laughs> pieces of art and, well, thank you. Um, you thank know, you. with, with that. And it's amazing. Thank um, you. you know, I think there's so many questions I have for you, but like, I, th- you know, one thing I love about you is your, your positive energy and your positive you. out- outlook on life. Thank you. And I'm curious of where that came from, how, you know, and what is that for you? Mm, it's 
it's funny you ask that, especially on a day like today. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but you know, this is the day after uh, the election. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know where the positive outlook came from outside of, I guess, maybe just my folks and my mom, especially. You know, like like my dad, as I mentioned, he's disabled. And he found a way to pitch in. You know, he's uh, the right side of his body is paralyzed. Yeah. But despite that, he found a way to learn how to drive a car with special pedals and a special, you know, knob on the steering wheel. Found a way to take us to school every morning and go to the store and buy what needed mm-hmm. buying to to provide. So the, and there's that kind of outlook that I, you know, I'm not going to let something overtake me mm-hmm. was influential. Yeah. Uh, my mom just not saying no to what it is that I needed, like not. Like me saying, mom, I want to see this rock concert that's 90 minutes away on a school night and her being like, okay, I'll drive you. Mm. Just that kind of, just not hearing no for an answer. I think this kind of makes me, I guess, feel as if what it is that I dream of and what it is that I desire is possible. Mm -hmm. And I guess because I feel like I don't have, I didn't necessarily have those kinds of obstacles blocking me from feeling that those things were attainable. Yeah. And, you know, in spite of this crazy shit with the election <laughs> we're all going through now you know it's yeah. like you just feel it in the city today it's just like it's it's a somber somber day in new york city it really and, is and and i don't know man i i am not going anywhere i'm staying here in new york city even though a lot of people are like making cracks about moving out of here or whatever <laughs> yeah. it's like i we will get through this man it's yeah. like the uh, yes we will have our grief and we will feel what we're going to feel but like it's just time isn't it you know it like after a while Things will, will, will work themselves out in the way that we need that they need to. We will go through what it is that we need to, and we need to kind of like stand strong and what is what it is that we believe in. Yeah, what yeah. it is that we represent and what it is that we fight for. And, and and so I guess I don't know, man. Maybe I just come from that place of love. Yeah, that yeah. it just feels so strong. And and you know there are negative things in the world, and I have my own negative thoughts, and I'm hard on myself just as much as the next person. But for me, the amount of just positivity and the amount of love that I have, I just, it feels uh, that tends to overcome that for me. And I do believe in it. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that there is love in everybody. And, um, you know, I, I, I I hang on to that a lot. And I do feel like things are follow a course and they're all that course where they're meant to happen. And there's a pendulum that swings and there's Mm -hmm. cycles that we go through. But I always know that the shitty times that we're in are just, it's a period of time. It's temporary and it'll go away and, um, and then we'll be back. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, things are what they are. And I think the idea is that you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah. You know, you can't change what's happened. You can only change how you react and what you, how you move on forward. 1000%. Yeah. How do you think the positivity affected your career and did it, did it help? Do you think it helped you get to where you're at today? I think so. You know, and and you know all about this too, man. Like we're we're freelancers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we get gigs, we get the next gig because of the gig that we just did. Yeah. So the way we behave, the quality of the work we output, you know, that all determines how how we move forward. So I do believe that one of the reasons I get called to do things is my attitude. Mm-hmm. I'm just I, I and like I by nature I'm just like I mentioned a positive guy when I critique it's a constructive criticism mm-hmm. you know I, I am I care so much about the music that I am representing that I want it to be the best that it can be mm-hmm. and I and if something's not to the level that I'd like it to be at it's not about 
berating something and being angry at someone for not accomplishing is about, okay, how can we make this better? Like, how can I see this through your lens mm-hmm. that will allow you to play this passage in the best way possible and the most yeah. melodious way possible, whatever that is. So I, um, you know, I do feel like as, again, being a music director, working with actors, there's a lot of psychology involved in that. Oh, interesting. So the way I talk to them, you know, the way I behave with them, the, 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 the timing of which I choose to give them certain amounts of information yeah. when they are ready to receive that. Yeah. That's like taking the temperature and feeling that out, that, that those are choices that you make and how you word things is important. Mm. So I do feel like, yeah, my, just my, my vibe definitely, I think makes people want to be around me and, and hopefully wants to have them hire me for the next thing. So I, I, I do believe that the way you treat people and the way you just behave yourself yeah absolutely. absolutely determines how you how often you work absolutely so i'd love to hear an example of uh you talk about the using psychology to work with with actors and different people how what would be an example of how you use that because that that stuff kind of fascinates me so. sure yeah yeah i mean let's see you know I, i've been complimented before on my patients mm-hmm. and let's let's say okay let's say there's a passage in a song that has a a particular um sequence of notes. I don't know. I, for example, it's supposed to go one, three, two, four. That's one example. And the singer just keeps going one, one, two, four, and they just don't hear the three. Yeah. And then it's my job to be like, okay, no, it goes like this and plunk it out on a piano. And then they s- might sing it wrong again. I'm like, okay, that's not working. I'm like, okay. And then I have to figure out what's another way to explain that sequence of notes. Cause clearly they're not, their brain isn't hearing that sequence. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, okay, do you realize that the, these two notes skip and you realize, or sometimes it might be like, you know, uh, oh, do you realize that these two notes are the same notes in an order? Or do you realize that you sang this note four notes ago? You can kind of go back to that. So just kind of like realizing what are different games to play yeah. that will get them out of their own way to be able to hear the sequence. You know, that, yeah. that's one example. Um, you know, another one is just like trying to figure out when they're ready to receive notes. For example, if there's a passage Back, you know, back to this one, two, three, four passage that I was talking about, you know, maybe they have to sing that passage while they're up on stage going through a very, you know, a, a hard emotional moment in a scene because it's something about the uh, a, a loss, a, a grief of, of loss of someone. You know, if they're performing that and we're in rehearsal and you can see that they're really in the moment and in like feeling that grief. Like that's not necessarily the best time for me to come up and like tap them on the shoulder and be like, ah, excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that you didn't sing the sequence of notes correctly. <laughs> it's about taking a step back and realizing, okay, what they're feeling is way more important. Yeah. And I will find the right time to come talk to them about this passage that it needs to be sung yeah. a certain way. So it's it's about trying to figure out when is the right time, when they're ready to receive that information. Yeah. And if you are in, in this passage of notes, if there's three notes of, uh, if, if there's three critiques that you need to give them and you can tell after you give them the second one that they're just like crumbling down and getting hard on themselves about it. You know what? I'm not going to give them that third critique. I'm going to yeah. find another day. You're going to let that go. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to yeah. make them feel less than you don't want to make them feel like they're failures. You don't want to make uh, your, your counterparts feel like they're, they're disappointing you. Mm-hmm. You know, you just try to listen, this is what you're doing. Great. This works fantastic. And you know what? Tomorrow's another day. We'll take care of it then. Yeah. Or I care about X when I really don't care about Y. It's about making choices and, 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 um, realizing at the end of the day and, and what it is that I do, like, it's just a show. <laughs> it's 
fine. I have a friend, my, my buddy Stephen Aremus always says, listen, it's just a show. It's not the cure for cancer. It's just, you know, the stakes might be high in our own personal minds, but yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, you know, will people really, yeah. re will that really change the outcome of an election? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I, we need to make those choices. Yeah. I mean, although this, this show is pretty epic and pretty, um, it's, it's huge, you know, it's a huge transformative, you know, it's transformed history. It's transformed the way that, that kids are being educated. It's transforming mm. so many things that we haven't even, you know, that are different. It's, it's, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's very, very special. I, the impact that this show has had, like none of us were expecting this. So it's, it's remarkable to see what it's done. It's quite amazing. Quite amazing. So let's jump back a little bit. So how did you, how did you start making a living doing this? You know, how did, <laughs> how did you say, you know, cause this is a lot, this is a podcast is a lot about, it's about creativity and creative entrepreneurship. And yeah. I think that's a big question that people have is, how do you go from starting out to starting to make money? I am very lucky in that I guess I've just had the right kind of guidance at the right time. Mm -hmm. So my first true experience of it was being, uh, I'm going to say nine years old, which 1985, I'm not, I'm not 10. I was 10, July 4th weekend, Miami beach at the Shelbourne hotel, South beach. And uh, there was a piano in the lobby I'm like, oh, look, there's a piano. And I just started like just playing the songs of the day, you know, One More Night by Phil Collins, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, The Greatest Lovable by Whitney, whatever. Yeah. And some like hotel guest, you know, who was just like, dude, you should put a tip jar on the piano. I'm like, oh, sure. And I put a cup and then like within an hour I had 10 bucks. Fantastic. That was amazing. I'm like, dude, that could, that could happen. That was brilliant. <laughs> Same thing happened when uh, I was, you know, move, move on to, I guess maybe junior high school and you know, actors would need uh, transcriptions of certain songs for their auditions. Yeah. And I would just do it just because I liked doing it. And, you know, the actor who was, you know, an adult would, would be like, Alex, I, I want to pay you for your work. How, how much would you like? I'm like, mm, I don't know, like $5. And she's like, Alex, don't sell yourself short. Here's 20. I'm like, oh my God. It's like, you know, it's just, again, just yeah. having people recognizing that what my skills are can actually get, make money yeah. and people just kind of pointing that out to me that way. Cause I don't know that my parents would have necessarily have encouraged that in that way. Yeah. I don't think they would have said, Oh, you got to charge X. You have to do this. I don't think they really knew. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm, I credit those people who were kind of just able to yeah. look at what that is. So just little by little that started to happen and um, being in an arts high school helped because, you know, let's say uh, th this was a very common occurrence you're someone throwing a cocktail party at a hotel and you need a, a pianist to, to play cocktail piano for an hour and you don't know where to call. So you call a school and you say, Hey, do you have any students who are willing to, to play piano for cocktail piano? And they would be like, yes, we have someone named Alex Lockamore. He can play, you know, hits radio hits. He can play standards. He can play Broadway, whatever you need. And I, they'd pay me 50 bucks an hour wow. for three hours work. So like imagine in 1992, being 17, making 200 bucks, like for just like sitting at a piano. That was, it was amazing. That's amazing. So that just all just, you know, it all just accumulated, accumulated. Yeah, accumulated. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was, and slowly I started to learn what the asking price was and I started to kind of, you know, get a feel yeah. for what it is that I should be charging and, and realizing what were the things that paid too little that I could say no to, what were the things that I really wanted to do that I'm like, oh, I should do that because it pays X and Y. So yeah, that, that just happens as you grow up and, yeah. and you get older and experienced. Totally. So what advice would you give to somebody in your shoes back then? Wow. 
just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you put yourself out there too. Like you put your, you know, you jumped out of your comfort zone and, Mm -hmm. and put yourself out there, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe it was that need to be noticed, you know, maybe it was that, yeah. And, you know, and, and looking back now, I don't know if that, that 4th of July thing, how much of that was me wanting you to be, Hey, I play piano. Look at me. And how much of that was me just being like, oh, this piano, I feel like playing. Yeah. I, I feel like expressing myself. I just, I, you know, I, I love the song by R.L. Speedwagon and I just want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to hear myself play it. <laughs> totally. Maybe it was a mixture of both. Who knows? You know, because yeah. I do, even to this day, there's a part of me that does, is very shy about playing in public. Yeah. And I will way more easily accompany someone who needs a pianist to play for them than I will to just sit down at a piano by myself and be like, mm. hey, listen to me play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know. So how have you balanced ego and just like self-fulfillment like mm-hmm. like between like playing music cuz I know as an artist for me like there's a lot of validation that has come through yeah. my photography and what who I'm what I'm up to, who I'm shooting and there's yeah. a big process for me where I learned that I had to separate myself from my self-worth from yeah, that who I was shooting, what I was doing mm. and because I, you get so attached to the art yeah, you know, it's it's you. It's personal. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, how have you dealt with that? You know, and and this would be, I'm I'm curious how this is for you because the art that I produce is very much, and I've said this before, it's in service of other people. Mm-hmm. Now I work for composers. You yeah, know, I work for people who need something done for them, who need yeah. an arrangement done, people who need someone to conduct a band. I don't necessarily. Me personally, this is Alex talking. I don't necessarily write a song because I need to express how I'm feeling. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy who's going to sit down and try to write a song about how I'm feeling about the election. You know, mm-hmm. I'm happy to, I'll happy to play someone else's <laughs> song about it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and back in the day, sure, I did that. Like I wrote those corny love songs when some girl broke my heart and that's what it needed <laughs> to be. But then I, I just started to kind of like see how I didn't like the quality of what it was that I was writing. And that was also, you know, a, a product of me having people kind of like just maybe kind of put down my work. You know, I do remember once being in a rock band and they all wrote their own songs and like I brought in my own and they were just mocking it. Like, dude, what is this shit? <laughs> they really said that. <laughs> and I just felt awful. It was like, you know, it's like, oh, we like these two bars. Can you throw the rest of them away? And I felt like such a, I just felt terrible. So, <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, that was very, that kind of scarred me a little bit. So yeah. it kind of uh, yeah. made me less prone to compose. But yeah. um, anyway, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, uh, there is a part of me that you know, my fulfillment of what I do comes from making other people happy and putting my own stamp into something that that is in service of someone else's yeah. uh, framework. Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm a translator, you know, I'm a yeah. uh, I'm an executor in a way, you know, like yeah. someone, it, it, an idea is born and then I kind of have to kind of make that thing come yeah. to fruition. But, um, but I'm curious for you, like how much of your art that you do is for you because, Hey, this is a, a this is an opinion that I have and I want to, uh, to portray that. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think there's a mix of both, you know, for me, I, I like, I get assigned and I have to carry out somebody else's idea, which I input my spin and my taste and my, my point of view on it, which mm-hmm. I think is very, sometimes it's, I actually work better that way. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm still working out. I think I am developing a point of view for my own personal work mm-hmm. that is something that's taken time yep. um, that I'm still working on putting out there. Right. Right. And it takes courage to do that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm as a composer, you know, the most I've done professionally is writing some songs for Sesame Street. 
And, you know, my buddy Bill Sherman, he's the music director for Sesame Street. And Bill, I, I've known him because we orchestrated in the Heights together. Yeah. And he was the one that said, Alex, you should write songs. And I'm like, no, nah, Bill, I'm not a composer. He's like, dude, I've seen your range and orchestrate. You can write a song for this. It's a 90 <laughs> second jam. Just do it. I'm like, oh, okay. And I was, I, I found to be, I, I got a lot of fun doing yeah. it. And I got good compliments and, and people were asking me to write songs for them. Like I'd be kind of, for a second, kind of became the guy that they would go to for songs. Yeah. And I know that I have never been so nervous as that moment between when you send your first draft to someone to when you get that response. Yeah. Because you put yourself out there and like, oh my God, what do they think? Are they going <sighs> to like it? I don't know. And I would hit refresh on my mail server every five minutes to see if they've written back, just waiting to see what they <laughs> thought of, of my creation. And like, that was, a, for me, a glimpse mm -hmm. of a taste of what it is that people as artists go through when they try to put something that is solely theirs out into the world like that. You yeah. know, what I do, like you mentioned, assignment work, that, that, yeah, that's what I do. So I can kind of like safely hide behind something in a little bit. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. it's uh, if you work on a show and, you know, it's very rarely that people will say, oh, the orchestrations for that show weren't very good. You yeah. know, it's like if the show doesn't do successful, they, they won't cite the orchestrations as being the downfall necessarily. Yeah. But they, they might cite the composer. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's a thing that, um, you know, I, I admire those who are courageous enough <laughs> to put themselves out there in that way. I know I mm -hmm. don't possess that courage right now in my life and maybe one day I will. Who knows? Yeah. You got to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Exactly right. But I definitely know that feeling. I mean, every time I do a shoot and a foursome one, I always, I send it out and I'm like, yeah. I hear back from them. You yeah. Know? And, what do they think? And then sometimes you don't and you're like, uh, <laughs> they hated it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Of course. Exactly. It, even if you think it's great, right? You're yeah. Like, you yeah, know? exactly. But yet you still need that validation. You can still think, oh, this is the flash stuff I've ever done. <laughs> And yet you still need that person to tell you, yeah, it's fly. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you, let's jump into Hamilton here. How did you meet Lynn and, and get on to that project? I met Lynn through uh, mutual friends and uh, it was a combination of some actors who I knew from Miami growing up who mm -hmm. were working on a workshop of In the Heights who said to him, hey, you, you should call Alex because he's a music director. He's an arranger. He's from Miami. He's Cuban. You guys would hit it off. You know, that that was helpful. Yeah, it was a um, you know a producer named Kevin McCollum who I had worked with before, who said to me, "Hey, there's this composer who you should meet. I think you can really help him." And yeah. and you know, thus was born <laughs> our relationship. <laughs> exactly. Just kind of people saying, "Hey, th these are two independent people saying that here are these two people who should just get in touch and connect." And yeah. that's what it was. So um, we just hit it off, and there was just that chemistry there that you. Yeah. You, know, you either have or you don't with someone. So I was very lucky that that chemistry was there. <laughs> and um, yeah, as a result, just Lynn has called me for projects ever since, whether it yeah. was Bring It On, whether it was Hamilton, whether it was going to the White House to play for Obama, <laughs> the first lady. <laughs> amazing. That was totally amazing. So um, yeah, you know, it's um, it, be it became the kind of thing where, you know, I just said to Lynn, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll help you out. And and it's just, uh, I, I get the calls. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So he, so you won, a, you won a, two Tonys and two Grammys. Yes. And that was for In the Heights, right? And then Hamilton. In the Heights and Hamilton, yeah. What was it, what was it like winning your first Tony and winning your first Grammy? What, what was that feeling? Amazing. And, and, and the second one felt as amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. You know, it, um, and especially for Heights, that being just a, I don't know. It was a long road to get to where that was because it was, you know, just years of working on the show of, of just working on something that we believed in and 
working on it back when we didn't even know if it was ever going to even go to Broadway. Yeah. You know, we were just working on it because we just thought it was cool art. And that's yeah. when we were drawn to it. So um, to know that our, you know, that the, that the work, I, I know speaking about in the Heights, that the work that Bill Sherman and I as orchestrators mm-hmm. were doing to know that that was being recognized in that way by our peers. It was just a, a completely amazing. Same thing with the Grammys, you know, like you, you, growing up as a musician, you know, you dream of getting that kind of uh, award. So, you know, it was wonderful to kind of be on that wave of heights, getting that kind of love. Um, And Hamilton was also just as amazing for me. You know, um, for me, it was different. What made Hamilton a little different for me was being the sole orchestrator on it. Mm. Because up until then, you know, every show I've ever done has been really with somebody else. You know, even back when I did Bat Boy, that was, I orchestrated that with the composer of that, Larry O'Keefe. And, uh, you know, when I did uh, Bring It On, that was with yeah. the other composer of Bring It On, Tom Kitt. So um, for Hamilton to be something that was completely, every note on that page was something that I had a decision um, in. And, and that was, I made the sole final decision on it at the end about what goes on the page. It was very fulfilling for me to be able to have that kind of honor bestowed on me. So I, I, I didn't take that lightly. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I, it was, Thank it was you. exciting to be there celebrating with you. Thank and- you, man to see you in your moment. It was, it was so fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so speaking of Hamilton and, and that process, what I, what's, I'd love to hear your creative process, you know, so Lynn comes to you and says, I've got this, I've got this play. Mm-hmm. What does he bring to you? And then how does, how do you bring that to life? Mm. So Lynn works primarily through, uh, his computer on a software called logic, mm-hmm. which is a glorified version of GarageBand, <laughs> where you basically track by track, build a song. And one instrument at a time, you program a drum beat or you find a loop, you find a bass sound and you play the bass line, you Mm -hmm. find a piano sound and you play the piano chords and you just build a a demo of what the song is supposed to be. And then you record your vocals on top of it. Sometimes you overdub yourself to create some harmonies on top of it. And then Lynn brings that to us. He brings it to what he calls Mm -hmm. the cabinet, which is Ah. me, our director, Tommy Kale, our choreographer, Andy Blankenbuehler. And then we'll sit around and, and kind of just offer our, our thoughts, our impressions on the piece and things that we like about it, things that we think can be clarified, things that we think could be stronger. And then as a group, we will kind of contribute in that way to the song. Yeah. And then Lynn will either go back and refine and revise and come back with a finished product. Other times the song will be finished product the, the first time he brings it out. It, it varies. Yeah. And then uh, Lynn doesn't write anything down. So he doesn't notate any music. So it becomes up to me to get the music notated. Wow. And sometimes that'll be me notating it. Sometimes that's me having assistance to it for us. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's my job to then look at the music and then make decisions about, okay, I really would prefer this to be notated in that way for me to make decisions about, oh, we need to harmonize these vocals here. And then me making a choice about let's put the ladies on this note. Let's put the guys on that note. Let's have that chord happening. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I'll teach it to the singers and then Lynn will listen to it and be like, that's great. I want to change this. I want to change that. Same thing with the band. I sit down and I make decisions about how many guitars will be in this orchestra. If the guitar is playing at the song, is he going to play an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar? Is he going to sit out the song altogether? I make those choices and write it all down and and then it gets to the musicians and then Lynn hears it and he says, I like this, I like that. We change this, we change that, or we says great and we move on. Yeah. So there's, there's room in there for me to be me. Mm-hmm. There's room in there for me to write and to uh, have my voice as, as a orchestrator and arranger. Yeah. And it's wonderful that Lynn is that collaborative, that he allows that space to exist for me to, to put my ideas in there. And yeah. sometimes they will stick, sometimes they won't, but yeah, it, it's, it's collaborative and, and, 
I always um, state and recognize that it is his song. Yeah. And it is his baby. And I'm the one kind of carrying the baby. <laughs> like, he's like, here, hold this. <laughs> and yeah. it's about, you know, uh, the way the song is executed and, and kind of brought to the world. Mm. That falls very much in my domain. But it's still presenting Lin-Manuel's creation to, to the world in this case. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's it's amazing. fun. And, and, and I live for that, man. I, <laughs> I really do. I, I enjoy it. Absolutely. So how long would you say it takes from, you know, conception, like when Lynn brought the tape to you until mm-hmm. you hit Broadway? It depends. You know, Lynn wrote the first song for Hamilton uh, in 2009-ish around then, r- r- right around the time we went to the White House. And we didn't open on Broadway until six years later. Yeah. So, you know, every song got written at a different point along the way. And uh, some songs got added at the last minute. Some songs got added from that first draft. So, and there's no real set answer to how long something takes because there have been times that Lynn has written a song and it comes to us at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and we have to teach it uh, an hour later. <laughs> wow. And that happens. Absolutely. Then you, you got to like put your things in place and sometimes you teach it without any music. Sometimes yeah. you just teach it by ear and that's what it is, but you have to roll with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it varies. You know, sometimes you could have six years to finish a chart. Other times you can have uh, five minutes. It, it, it all varies. Wow. Well, you're, you're epically talented, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Now, and you have, from what I hear, you have a, a photographic memory for music, it sounds like. And you can hear a piece and then basically recreate it or, or work on it. For certain things, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I can still, like, sing to you songs that I've heard once Wow. In college, <laughs> at some <laughs> recital, and I don't know why that is, dude. But it's just, I don't know. So, yeah. so something makes an impression on me, and it, it just it makes it last. It, it lasts for whatever reason. That's a gift. I can't even remember. I'm the worst with song names, song oh. lyrics, and any oh. of those. Like I can't, I'll hear a song a hundred times and still couldn't tell you the lyrics. <laughs> but that's pretty awesome. Thank you. That's pretty amazing. So. This podcast it, or Neon is really about living a vibrant life. Mm. And so I have a couple of questions along that lines of, you know, there's a lot of gray in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, when do you feel personally in, in a gray zone? And then, well, the other question would be is when do you feel the most vibrant? Wow. When you're living in vibrance. I feel the most vibrant when I'm playing. And it's like, it's, it's probably akin to catching a wave. Yeah. When it's like, you don't know why, you don't know how it happens, but you know, take Hamilton, for example, you know, we, we play the same show every performance. And then why is it that out of nowhere, for whatever reason, that one song, like, I don't know, like all of a sudden that one time that you played Dear Theodosia for the 426th time, just everything clicks and you just feel good. And there's something about the way the other musicians are playing and listening to each other that everything just like lines up and it just comes out perfect. But yet the 425th time wasn't like that. And the 427th time isn't like that. <laughs> it's just that you catch that wave and for whatever reason, it's just there and you ride that yeah. and, and you're just being, and, and you're not working and you're just, uh, it's just existing in a way that just, you just feel limitless. Mm. Mm. And, and that for me, I guess is where I, I feel super vibrant. And, you know, in terms of the gray, you know, what it takes to get there, you know, sometimes it's harder than others, you know. Yeah. And I admit I obsess over things musically related. Like, you know, I will sit there and work on two bars of music for one hour if I need to just wow. to get it right. 
because I will try this. I'm like, no, it doesn't quite work. I will try that. No, it's all right. I'm like, I like the other one better. And I will pour over it and I will look at it from every other angle and I will like examine (laughs) it and be like, what is the best possible way to express this right now? Yeah. And um, that's tedious and it sucks up a lot of time. But for me, it's what my path is to get to where I feel like I've not finished, but like where I feel like, okay, this is the best that I can do. Yeah. I've kind of said everything that I need to say. And this is how I feel the best way is to express myself. Yeah. And you know, I, one could argue that that's me feeling vibrant as well. Yeah. But you know, I, I think the, the work piece of it, the part that you kind of, you know, there's a lot of getting your hands in the dirt and there's a lot of time spent and there's a lot of, uh, you know, self doubt <laughs> and, and worry and wonder that goes into it. And, and, you know, that could be like a gray area perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, self doubt's a huge killer. I mean, and every, I mean, for me, it's huge, you know, it's yeah. like the constant, you know, ebb and flow of that. And it's like talking yourself past that is a big feat. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any advice for, for getting out of that, that cycle of self-doubt? You know, I think it's just kind of one thing that's helped me is realizing that there's always another idea Mm. and it might not be yours. And maybe that idea might not come to you right at that moment, but I think it's just trusting that you can go back to the well and that there will be something else there. So if something's not working for you or for someone else, like, in, you know, let's talk about working on assignment. If something is not gelling for the person that you're looking to, to cater to, then don't take it personally and work on something else. And there's another idea. There's another way to present an idea. It's about not being precious about what it is that you create and being okay to, to lose something and being okay knowing that, listen, like not everything, you're not going to shit gold every time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's going to be some clunkers in there and that's fine. Yeah. And just it, just be okay with the fact that maybe something you love and created wonderful might not be able to exist in the finished work. Maybe mm. this song that you wrote is not going to be heard on Broadway and whatever, man, you wrote this great song and it exists. And what a shame that other people can't hear it right now, but maybe they will someday. Yeah. But just know that you created something and be proud of yourself that you did it and just, um, just keep at it. I love that. I love that. So what is your, what's your vision? Where do you want to go? What's up next in the world for you? I know you're working on Dear Evan Hansen. Yes. And, yes. You know, orchestrating all the other Hamiltons that are <laughs> popping up. <laughs> but, um, you know, definitely Hamilton is, is starting to go worldwide right now. So that, that's my, the most immediate thing that I've got going on is supervising all the companies and mm-hmm. being involved with the casting of that, being involved with the rehearsals of that, um, the music departments of that and, and putting all that together. And yes, dear Evan Hansen, we start previews on Monday. This coming up November 14th wow. is our first, uh, yeah, first paying audience, which is great. Fantastic. But you know, I don't really have a huge goal that I could say, this is exactly what I want to be doing in five years. I do know that I'm very curious about working in TV. I'm very curious about working in film mm. You know, I feel like there's, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing in the theater world right now, but I would like to kind of do other things as well. I would love to like arrange for pop acts. Like, you know, just recently, uh, Sarah Bareilles asked me to write a string arrangement for a song that she'd written for This American Life. Like that's exactly Amazing. what I love doing. Yeah. Just like working on commission and, and contributing to something on, on in that world, you mm-hmm. know, because the, the theater world is great. The pop world's fantastic as well. The TV world, the, the film world, whatever that is, these are different mediums that... I think I've always been interested in and that's another way that I can express myself in. So um, I'm hoping more of those opportunities will start kind of popping up and it's great that Hamilton is kind of like 
provided a little bit of a spotlight in what it is that I do, mm-hmm. what it is that my skills are, and, and hopefully will kind of open some doors for other things for me to, to work on moving forward. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. A couple more questions before we wrap up here. What do you do? Do you have a morning routine and, and things that kind of keep you, that you use like tools of that mm. sort to, to kind of get you in a certain state of mind in the mornings and get your days mm. going and, and get in that space? Not me particularly. You know, I've, I've never... I don't have a lot of a rhythm to my life <laughs> and that, you know, I say that in the sense that I don't always get up at the same time every day. I don't have to be at the same place every day at the same time that varies. And yeah. even if I do, it's only temporary. Like if I have to be at 10 AM for rehearsals, that's only like for six weeks and then it changes mm-hmm. and my day off is never the same. Yeah. From So I don't, I don't really thrive on routine in that way. Yeah. <laughs> and like my friends really, Love to joke with me about it because I, I can't even have the same thing to eat twice in a row. Like wow. if I go to like the same restaurant two days in a row, I, I like, I can't order the same thing. I'm like, are you crazy? Like I just can't, I need, I need, uh, I need change. I need to mix it up. I need to know, I need to know what else is out there. So yeah, I, I don't, um, you know, I definitely, you know, at some point in the morning I will brush my teeth and <laughs> like that yeah. will definitely happen, but I may eat breakfast at home and I may not, and yeah. it might be oatmeal or it might be eggs. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, I, I, um, you know, everything else in between is all, <laughs> all, uh, a little bit speculative. <laughs> speculative. Yeah. 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 Where do you draw your inspiration from? I get inspiration from the things around me, mm. um, from music around me, from, from my peers, I get inspiration from the music that I hear and the people who I admire mm. who create something that I'm like, Oh wow, that's great. I, I wish I could have been a part of that. Like, Oh, I, that's wonderful. I, I, that fills me. Yeah. And I want to be able to have that feeling myself. Yeah. I love going to live shows. I love seeing how musicians on a stage feed off the energy of the crowd. Yeah. I love seeing how it's put together. I love seeing what the instruments are that they use on the stage and how they design their set list and where the, those peaks and valleys are in, in the course of an evening, how the the show is programmed, you know, I, um, that kind of stuff I, I, inspires me. Yeah. Um, uh, seeing good art, whether it's a dance piece, a sculpture, whatever it is like that, I'll, you know, I, I love all that too. Yeah. And yeah, those kinds of things just kind of, they, they give me, I don't know, peace. <laughs> they give me, uh, inspiration as you say, but, uh, yeah, they, they, they keep me going. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So one question I love to ask all my guests is what does the phrase live inspiration mean to you? Mm-hmm. It means doing what you love. It means just believing in something and, and, and sticking to it mm-hmm. having pride in what it is that you do being inspired by others and in turn trying to inspire others around you. Yeah. And just like, it's a cycle, you know, it's about, it, it's an in and out. It's a give and take. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. I love that. Well, Alex, I acknowledge you for using your gift. Thank you. To share with the world and inspiring the world with that. And thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, dude. And uh, where can people find you, follow you on the interwebs? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I, I guess I have a Twitter account. Yeah. Lackety lack. Lackety lack. Yeah. Uh, L-A-C-K-E-T-Y-L-A-C. Love it. My nickname's Lack. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, thanks again so much. Thanks for having me, Nick.
Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Neon Radio with Alex Lacamoire. I'm your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help me out by leaving us a good review over on iTunes, sharing out the episode on social media. The URL and the show notes, if you want to check those out, is neonradio, N-I-O-N radio.com slash EP107. And also, I'd love to see where you're listening to the episode and where you're being inspired. So tag me on Instagram with a photo at Nick Onkin. And with that, it's time to go out, create your life by creating every small moment, and we'll see you next time.